Hi, this is Alan Chartok, delighted because with us today is Dr. Jason Fung, a Canadian nephrologist and world-leading expert on intermittent fasting and low-carb, especially for treating people with type 2 diabetes. He co-founded the Intensive Dietary Management Program and has written three best-selling health books, The Obesity Code, The Complete Guide to Fasting, and The Diabetes Code, all available on Amazon. You can find out more at Dr. Fung's website at idmprogram, that's one word, dot com, idmprogram.com, or at dietdoctor.com. Dr. Fung graduated from the University of Toronto and completed his residency at the University of California, Los Angeles. He lives and works in Toronto with Team Diet Doctor. Together, Dr. Fung says they want to make it simple for people to understand and implement intermittent fasting to improve their health. And I can tell you now, I am a practitioner. We'll talk with Dr. Fung about all of this But first, welcome, Dr. Jason Fung. Thanks for having me. So great to be here. Well, I have to say I'm enamored of the program. So why don't you go over the basic tenets with everybody so they'll know what it is that you are positing here. Go ahead. So what we really stress is sort of the application of fasting in a therapeutic method. That is, it's such a simple sort of concept that if you don't eat anything, so fasting is really defined as any period of time that you're not eating anything. So you can drink fluids like water or tea, for example, but nothing to eat. And the idea that has sort of gotten hold in the last sort of 30 years is that we should be eating all the time. Even if we're trying to lose weight, you should eat all the time. That is, eat from the minute you get up to the minute you go to bed and eat six or ten meals sort of in between. But the thing about it is that it's really counterintuitive. It's really not logical. That is, how is eating more frequently supposed to help you lose weight? And it's not something that people have done in the past. That is, if you look back to the 70s, for example, we have large studies that show that people ate three meals a day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Now, when you do surveys, you find that people are eating longer in terms of duration and more frequently. So the idea is that if you simply carve out periods of time that you're not eating, then you're going to allow your body to use the energy that's stored within it, the calories or the body fat. So you can store the food energy as sugar or as body fat. And if you don't eat, then your body is really forced to use the sugar. So if you have type 2 diabetes where your sugar is too high, well, now you can simply not eat and allow your body to use that sugar and it will bring it down. But it's 100% natural. You're not using medications to do it. And as you do this on a regular basis, then you're going to lose weight because if you don't eat, you're going to lose weight. And as you lose weight, the type 2 diabetes gets better, the obesity problem gets better, and those are huge risk factors for other diseases such as heart disease and cancer and strokes and all these really, really bad diseases. So the whole point is that if you intervene at an early stage to sort of fix these metabolic problems, then you can prevent a lot of disease down the line. Or if you simply want to lose weight to look good for the summer in a bikini or whatever, then you can do that because it's 100% natural. That's the entire reason that your body has body fat is because it's a store of food energy. So you're using the body fat for exactly what it was designed for. And there's nothing unhealthy or unnatural about it. 
Give us the program. I mean, I can give you the program because I know what I've been doing for the last several months, which is to eat for eight hours and not eat for 16 hours. And it means if I eat at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, the first meal I can have is 8 o'clock the next morning. And I've been doing that, driving everybody around me crazy. Uh, but, <laughs> but it works. That's what's extraordinary. And there's another way to do it, which I don't do, which is miss total days. Can you explain what's behind both approaches? Yeah, so really intermittent fasting includes all of those approaches. So you can use different times. So a 16-hour fast, which is the same as an 8-hour eating window. So sometimes people call it time-restricted eating is a very popular way of doing intermittent fasting. The whole point is that if you shorten the period of time that you eat, you're going to naturally sort of use those other times, those fasting times to burn fat. But it doesn't have to be 16. It could be 24, for example. So that's another sort of very popular regimen, which is called a one meal a day. So if you eat dinner one day and you don't eat anything until dinner the next day, you've got 23 or 24 hours where you haven't eaten anything. And that's also very popular. So that when you do shorter periods of fasting, they typically are done more frequently. So a 16-hour fast might be done six days a week, for example. A 24-hour fast might be done three to four times a week. And then you can go longer than that if you like. So you can go the full day, which is, for example, if you ate breakfast, lunch, and dinner today, not to eat the full day tomorrow. And that's getting towards 36 hours. So there's pros and cons of both, of course, and there's no real right or wrong answer. Some people like the long fast and some people like the short fast. The key is really to get the education, so to understand what is happening, why you might want to do a shorter one versus a longer one. But there's nothing to lock you in. You could do a 16-hour one day and a 24-hour the next day, and then nothing the day after that. It's very, very flexible, so you can fit it into your day schedule. So if one day you have to have lunch because you're going out for business or something, mm -hmm. then you can. And the next day you might not have lunch because well, you don't have anything that day. So you might consider that and add that to your fasting period. So uh, the key is really to get a good understanding of what fasting is, what to expect when fasting, and that kind of thing. And that's one of the things we talk about in, in the book and also at the IDM program. We have a whole program for people to get the education. And the other thing that we provide at the idmprogram.com is like a community so that if you have problems, you can talk to people. It's just easier to do as a group because if people around you are fasting, then it's actually much easier to fast. And that was the secret behind periods of time like Lent, for example, or Ramadan or Yom Kippur. All these people have done fasting throughout history for thousands of years because if everybody is not eating on a day, like Good Friday, for example, well, you don't feel so out of the ordinary. Yes, you know, you feel hungry sometimes, but everybody else is doing it, so it's easy to go along with. And that's uh, how these things have done. And, you know, the point is that it's, it's really a very ancient technique for wellness, but it's powerful because if you have weight to lose that is making you sick, such as type 2 diabetes, now you can use this natural solution to do it yourself and get better. And that's the whole idea of talking about these sort of things is to let people take control of their health. That is, if you have a disease which is related to weight or if you have a disease which is related to type 2 diabetes, like, you know, it causes eye disease and kidney disease and all kinds of disease. Well, your options include changing up your diet, but also you know, implementing these periods of fasting, which are completely free. 
And your experience is that it works, right? In other words, I certainly understand because my numbers have gone down significantly. I went from a 140 pounds in the morning to 120 now. And frankly, doctor, if there's anything I'm worried about, it's getting too low. But obviously, you're keeping tabs on how diabetic neuropathies and other things are changed by the diet. And the question I would have is, does the endocrine community find this somewhat challenging? I think so. I think that it's an entirely new sort of way of treating and thinking about the disease. So there's two types of diabetes, type 1 and type 2, and let's be clear that this is type 2 diabetes, right. which is about 90 or 95% of diabetes. So type 1 is not diet-related, so changing your diet doesn't necessarily make it a lot better. There are ways to sort of tweak it, but type 2 diabetes is the main one that we talk about with diabetes, and it's the majority, the vast majority of diabetes. So that idea of using diet primarily as your tool is sort of contrary to everything that we're taught as doctors. So, for example, I I tell the story sometimes. I went to a lecture one time on diabetes, and so the speaker went up, and very prominent speaker, and goes, you know, diet and lifestyle are the number one, two, and three choices for the treatment of diabetes, and then spent the next 59 minutes out of 60 minutes talking about drugs. And the next speaker was exactly the same thing. It says, you know, we should always treat first with diet, and then spoke for the next 59 minutes about drugs. So the way that we're taught is that this is a disease that requires drugs. And and this is the sort of paradigm that doctors get into because, for example, if somebody comes in with an infection, you give them antibiotics and they get better, right? You don't think about, oh, you know, how to change the diet to fight this, you know, bad toe infection. You need drugs. And so we apply that same paradigm of thinking to a dietary disease. So we have a dietary disease such as type 2 diabetes or obesity, which everybody knows is related to the diet, and you apply drugs to it. And then you think, why aren't people getting better? And the answer is obvious when you think about it. It's because you're using drugs to try and fight a dietary disease. And if you just look at it, you say, okay, well, that doesn't make any sense. You have to change the diet. You have to fix the root cause of the disease. And it doesn't need drugs. It needs a better diet. So fix that, and the diabetes goes away. And that's what we showed in our case series uh, last year that we published, where we had three people that we followed, and all of them had type 2 diabetes for about 20-plus years, Mm. and all of them on very high doses of insulin for years, so five or six years. And so we got them off all their insulin, and it took the maximum was 18 days. They came off everything. And for the next year, they basically were not diabetic. They were classified as not diabetic. So for 25 years, they'd been treated with medications and been told they had type 2 diabetes within a month at the most. We had them all classified as non-diabetic, took them off their medications. It was ridiculous how quickly they got better. And, and what prevent- did you have them do, doctor? Did you have them do the uh, the alternative daily diet or the... Yeah, so we, we changed their diet. We told them to reduce, you know, the sugar in their diet, basically. Sure. So cutting down the sugar, cutting down the refined carbohydrates, and then implementing a 24-hour fasting period three times a week. So three days of the week, instead of eating three meals, they would eat one meal a day. And, and that alone reversed their diabetes. And it won't in everybody, but in a lot of people, people will significantly get better. That it works is is not really questionable because if you say, okay, well, if you don't eat, what will happen to your blood sugars? And everybody will tell you they'll come down. It's like, okay, well, if we know that, why can't we use that information? Because 
the whole problem with type 2 diabetes is sugars are too high. Well, here we have a treatment that's going to lower it. Everybody agrees that it's going to lower it, so let's just use that because it's natural and it's free and it's available. And that's what we did. And nobody denies that, hey, if you don't eat, you're going to lose weight. So then why don't we do that? And the reason is that we, we get trapped into this way of thinking that, oh, we have to eat all the time, even to lose weight. And it's like, that sounds really stupid because it is really stupid. Like, we, you want to eat less. We are talking to the amazing Dr. Jason Fung. His books include The Obesity Code, The Complete Guide to Fasting, and The Diabetes Code. Hey, Dr. Fung, which of those would be a good first book for everybody to be reading? I think the obesity code is probably the one to start with. It really talks about the science of what causes weight gain and weight loss because everybody thinks it's about too many calories, and it's really not. The human body doesn't work on calories. It has no way to measure calories, and eating zero-calorie foods really doesn't work. So if you think about it, you say, okay, well, you have, say, soda or diet soda with artificial sweeteners that has zero calories, but switching from regular soda to diet soda just about never causes is weight loss. So it's not about the calories. It's really about the hormonal situation in our body and how to fix that. Diet soda is a no-no? It's not really any better than regular sodas. And there's a lot of reasons for that. But basically, it's because you don't fix the sort of hormonal imbalance that causes the obesity in the first place. The essential idea is that your body can do one of two things with the calories it takes in. It can burn it for energy or it can store it as body fat. And which one it does really depends on the hormone. So the main hormone we talk about is insulin. And when you eat, insulin goes up and it tells our body to store food energy. That is, our body wants to store food energy when you're eating because when you don't eat, when you're fasting or when you're sleeping, for example, and you're not eating, you need a way to pull that food energy sort of back out. Your body really is sort of in one of two states. It's either in the fed state where you're storing food energy or you're in the fasted state when insulin is low and you're burning food energy. And that's the reason that uh, you need to cycle them because if you're fed, then you have to be fasted. So that's the sort of normal cycle. And that's why we have the word breakfast, right? So you're supposed to feed, then you're supposed to fast, then you're supposed to break your fast. Now we got rid of all the fasting periods and then we wonder why people are gaining weight. It's because you're putting food energy in, you're storing calories, but you're not pulling them back out because there's no time. You're not giving your body time because you eat and then you eat and then you eat. So all the time you're telling your body to store that food energy. And that's one of the reasons why intermittent fasting is very, very effective even if you keep the same foods and just simply shorten the times that you eat. It works on a different principle entirely than the foods that you eat. So diet is composed sort of of two main issues, what you eat, but also when you eat. So most diets only focus on the what to eat part of the question. So they miss sort of 50% of it, which is when to eat. So if you eat a very, very healthy diet, but you're eating it constantly, you still may not do very well because you got the what to eat right, but you've not got the when to eat right. And so, that's the part that... So are there people who this doesn't work with? There are some people who really shouldn't be fasting, long fasts. I mean, you've yeah. got to remember that in the 1970s, a 12-hour fast was sort of standard. So you ate dinner, say, at 7 p.m., you ate breakfast at 7 a.m., that's 12 hours of fasting every single day without even question or even thinking sure. about it. So 12 hours is sort of a baseline. So 
you know, you can push that to 16 hours. But when you start getting beyond that, for people who are you're worried for that are malnourished, people who are pregnant, breastfeeding, or children, in those sort of states, you really want them to grow. So you don't want to limit nutrients. So you don't want to do sort of extended past that. But for most other people, it's quite safe. Okay, so let me ask you a question, and probably ancillary and not relevant to our discussion. But we do know that when people have had the weight loss surgery, banding or stapling, that they come out without any diabetes. What's that about? Yeah, that's a very interesting question, actually, because you can take a man who's, say, 500 pounds with the worst type 2 diabetes, and within sort of a month, he'll be off all his medications and be non-diabetic, and he'll still weigh 450 pounds. So the point is that if you severely limit the amount of food that somebody can eat, such as with the weight loss surgery, Mm. then the body is forced to burn all the sugar. And as it burns all the sugar, then the diabetes goes away. And what it tells us is that type 2 diabetes is almost always a reversible condition. And that's a very, very important point because, you know, most diabetes associations, they'll tell you the opposite. Most doctors have the opposite opinion. They say, well, it's a chronic and progressive disease. It's like that's because you're using drugs instead of the diet. So if you're using the wrong treatment, the disease progresses. If you use the right treatment, which is dietary. Now, surgery is not dietary, obviously, but it has a huge impact. The the surgery is done to severely limit the diet. Then you fix the diet, then the disease goes away. And the, the whole key takeaway is that it's a reversible condition. Do not treat it as if it's inevitable. Mm -hmm. Talk to me about ketosis. What's that? Ketosis is a natural state when your body is either fasting or has very, very low carbohydrates. So essentially when your body has very low carbohydrate, which is glucose intake, then the brain still needs a source of fuel and it can't use fat. So mostly your body can use fat directly. So fat is triglycerides, which your fat cells break down into triglycerides, your liver, your kidneys, your muscles. They can use the fat, the triglycerides directly, but not the brain. So so if you're not eating a lot of glucose, then your your liver will produce ketone bodies from the fat, which cross the blood-brain barrier, and then provide most of the energy for the brain. And that's a natural sort of state. Everybody gets confused with diabetic ketoacidosis, which is a pathological state, but this sort of ketosis is a natural state when you don't eat a lot of carbohydrates or when you're fasting. So that's what it is, and you can measure it in the blood. You can measure it with a breath tester, for example, you know, as a biofeedback measure to say that you're in ketosis, which means your body is mostly burning fat. So let's go to the diet itself. My son went on the diet that I've been on for quite a while now, and he called me up and he said, Dad, the problem is that I'm allowed to eat for eight hours, uh, but it's what you eat during those eight hours. I'm gorging myself during the eight hours. I said, no, you can't do that. You have to combine it with another diet. And the diet that I combine it with is the whole 30, basically, you know, no carbohydrates. Is that wrong? Was my advice wrong? No, you're right on the mark because, like I said, there's two key components, what you eat 
and when you eat. So now you're fixing both because you're eating sort of a restricted carbohydrate diet, which is very good for weight loss, for example, amongst other things. And you're combining it with the sort of intermittent fasting, which is clearing up the problem of when to eat. If you eat sort of junk food for those eight hours, it's not going to be good for you. (laughs) It's better than if you don't have the fasting, but you still have only fixed sort of half of the problem. You haven't fixed the sort of what to eat question. So, you know, the question of what to eat, there's lots of different opinions and so on. For the most part, if you're reduced processed foods, sugar and processed grains, so flour and that kind of thing, so a lot of the breads and cookies and muffins and donuts, so you're sort of most of the way there. And then people sort of have differing opinions on the other parts. But yeah, combining a good diet with the fasting is sort of very powerful. And that's why fasting is so important to understand because it works with any diet, whether you're vegan or carnivore or keto or paleo or Whole30 or whatever. It works with all of those diets. Even if you're a standard American diet, it still works with those diets. It focuses on something completely different. My problem right now, as I indicated before, is I've lost too much weight. My GP said, okay, what were you when you were, you know, 20 years old? I said, 125. He said, well, that's what you should be. And I look pretty good, but here I am, 77 years old, and I weigh 120 now and going down. So I guess he says, well, you have to eat more. What do you think? No, I think the thing is that if you, one, I mean, that's very good to get down to that weight for sure. But most older people have less muscle mass. So if you compare yourself at age 20 to now, you likely have less muscle mass. So body weight is a very poor indicator of health, actually. If you look at metabolic syndrome, which is the, the syndrome of diabetes and high blood pressure and cholesterol and body weight, it doesn't use the body weight measure because what is much more closely related to risk of heart attack is actually waist circumference because that that indicates how much sort of of the abdominal fat or the visceral fat you carry, which is the really dangerous stuff. So what you're trying to do is get close to sort of half your height. So your waist should be ideally half your height. And that's the sort of measure. So even if you weigh more or less, it might be because your muscle or your bones weigh more or less. So when you're 20, your bones generally are more dense and your muscles are generally bigger. So therefore, you likely would weigh more. So if you want to gain weight, you really want to sort of increase exercise to try and get some of that muscle back. That's where I was going next. So what kind of exercise should we be doing? I think all types of exercise are good for you in different ways. I mean, it goes in and out. I think the big trend, which I think makes a lot of sense, is something called high-intensity interval, which is try and lift heavier things less often, for example. So I think that is very good. I think, you know, in the 70s and 80s, everybody talked about doing cardio. And I think that there are benefits to that, but there's been a bit of a swing as well to understanding that, hey, there's also benefits in doing things like weights and lifting heavy things. And the focus now is more towards natural movements rather than sort of isolation. So 30 years ago, we talked about isolating the biceps or isolating the triceps. Mm. Uh, And that's still important for bodybuilding, for definition and so on. But nowadays, you see more people doing things like, oh, lift this heavy thing from here to here, because that's sort of a natural movement and free weights and squats and all those things and kettlebells. Um, All of those are sort of, you know, mimicking things that we would have done in the past. Um, you know, like carrying a heavy rock somewhere, right? So if we were like shepherds and Mm. 
Sardinia or something, yeah, we might have to carry or carry a sheep from you know place A to place B. It's like okay, that's a natural movement. So there's this a sort of move towards doing natural court, and it's not one single muscle group like a bicep. It's the combination of all those muscle groups together. So we're talking to Dr. Jason Fung, Canadian nephrologist, world-leading expert on intermittent fasting and low-carb, especially for treating people with type 2 diabetes. He has written several books, but the three bestsellers are The Obesity Code, The Complete Guide to Fasting, and The Diabetes Code. He says, start with The Obesity Code, and we will. Um, So I walk. I walk four miles a day. How do you think that fits? I think that is very, very good, because again, these are natural movements, and you know, the more you do these movements, you know, if you don't use it, you lose it, right? So right. if you don't walk, and this is probably one of the big longevity secrets of all those people in the past is that they just used to walk all the time rather than take cars and all this sort of thing. And, you know, you get to a state where the walking itself becomes a very enjoyable, but the less you walk, yeah. So the, the whole point is that you really have to continue to use it. If you look at astronauts, for example, you take away the gravity and their bones just deteriorate. You know, we know that and their muscles just deteriorate. So they have to ride their exercise bicycle and so on. So it's the same thing. Your body is always in this sort of continual replacement cycle. And if you don't use something, like if you don't walk, then your body is going to gradually lose the ability to walk. And we see this in hospitalized patients where people are bedridden for a week the rate of muscle deterioration is very rapid. So it's important to be out there and keep moving. So sometimes that means doing exercise or sports, but you know, to be able to build that into your daily routine is actually far you know, more natural, it's more enjoyable. You can walk after dinner or whatever it is. It's like that's fantastic. We're talking to Dr. Jason Fung, and now, Dr. Fung, I want to ask you about your own interesting history. You're a nephrologist, and so here you are, one of the leading experts on weight loss in the world now. People are coming to you and as a shrine. The question for you is, what does nephrology have to do with weight loss? <laughs> That's a great question. So the biggest cause of kidney disease is type 2 diabetes. And so over the past 20 years, we've been seeing more and more kidney disease. So obesity has gone up. We know that. Type 2 diabetes has gone up. We know that. And that has sort of translated into a lot of kidney disease. So I see people at the end when they have all this disease that is brought on by the type 2 diabetes. And for many years, I just practiced as a normal nephrologist, and I would put them on dialysis, I would give them pills, and so on. And it sort of gradually dawned on me that the entire process was incorrect. That is, let's look at the chain of causality here. You have overweight, which leads to type 2 diabetes, which leads to kidney disease. Well, how do you get people better from kidney disease? obviously, you got to get rid of the type 2 diabetes. And in order to get rid of the type 2 diabetes, you got to get rid of the weight. But every doctor, you know, that's been trained is trained to treat you at the end of that chain where the kidney disease is. Oh, what drugs do you need? What surgery do you need? What dialysis do you need? What lines do we need to put in? What procedures do we have to do for you? It's like you'll never get better doing that. What you need to do is go up the chain and go to the root cause, which is the weight. If you lose weight, then you don't get the diabetes, and therefore, you don't get the diabetic kidney disease. 
And it's like, that is the only way to treat people. So that's why, you know, a few years ago, I became very, very interested in the question of how to lose weight because it impacted me directly because this is going to change everything in terms of how I treat patients. That is, if I see them early enough that they don't have kidney disease, then I'm going to focus very, very heavily on getting them to lose weight to improve their metabolic health and then prevent that type 2 diabetes, which will prevent me from needing to treat them at all for kidney disease because they won't have any. Doctor, let me just interject because I'm sure everybody's screaming at the radio wants to know the same answer. Can kidney disease be reversed with your diet? Only in the very early stages. So remember that the kidney disease comes at the very, very end of that chain. So usually it's 20 years of type 2 diabetes and probably 30 years of obesity before that. And the damage that's done cannot easily be reversed. It's kind of like if you don't change the oil in your car and then it breaks down, then you say, okay, I'm going to change the oil in my car. It's like, that's great, but it may or may not make you better. So kidney disease, once it becomes established, is actually very hard to reverse, but it needs to be prevented. And that's the sort of bottom line. I hope that it would reverse, and sometimes we do see it, but it's not common. But at least we hope to slow down its progression by getting people to lose weight and reverse their type 2 diabetes. So what kind of a family do you come from that allows you to be this breaker of traditional medical norms. I mean, which you have done, and I'm always interested in how people develop the character to take on a whole industry. I've thought about that too, because it's, and I think it's because I, one, I read a lot, and so sometimes things are incongruous to me. So when I look at a problem, I'm very interested in sort of puzzles and things like that, trying to figure stuff out. So like, you know, I spend hours on like Sudoku and stuff, figuring out puzzles. And, you know, for me, it was when I saw that there's this sort of very, very fundamental problem with the way that we treated these diseases, then I spent hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours just reading. And I'm not like a snob. I'm not going to read any book because it's not good. I only will read scientific papers. I, I read everything. So I, you know, even stuff that's in the newspaper because I wanted to know like sort of what it is that we were getting wrong. So the first part of, you know, solving any problem is admitting there is a problem. So the issue with a lot of medical practitioners and medical schools and universities is they can never admit that there's a problem. They can never say, we're not the experts. They have to say, we know exactly what's going on. So therefore, they never admit the problem. They never change what they do. So they didn't see anything wrong with what they're doing, that is treating people at the end of the chain with dialysis as opposed to treating them at the beginning, solving the root cause. They couldn't admit that problem to themselves. But I don't have that sort of handicap because... I'm willing to say, well, look, everything's wrong because my loyalty is not to sort of the medical profession. My loyalty is to the patient in front of me. And this is for all the doctors who work sort of on the front line. That is their main goal. For the academic doctors that are in the university and so on, they may not see as many patients. So they're more interested in the theory and so on. But to me, it's about treating that patient in front of me. And if it doesn't work for them, I see and I feel their pain, right? I see them. I put them on dialysis and I feel, you know, somehow I failed this patient. And, you know, you can only take that certain number of 
years before you go, okay, well, isn't there a better way? And to some extent, the medical profession doesn't admit the problem because they say, no, type 2 diabetes is chronic and progressive. Or they say, well, you should just cut your calories. It's like, but we've told people, this is the strangest thing. So we tell people to count their calories and to reduce their calories to lose weight. Okay, that's the same advice that's been given for about 50 years. It fails all the time, and everybody knows it. If you look at studies, chronic calorie restriction fails about 99% of the time to cause lasting weight loss. So it's like, okay, so we know that our advice fails 99% of the time. Why would we give that advice? And why aren't we looking for better advice? Yeah, good point. Good point. Let me ask you a question, because I think a lot of people are listening who want to know how to do it. And one of the ways you're going to know how to do it is read Dr. Fung's books, The Obesity Code, or The Complete Guide to Fasting and The Diabetes Code. And if you go online, Dr. Fung has wonderful interlocutories with a lot of people who ask specific questions. Anything you ever thought of, they're going to ask. Can you have an aspirin? (laughs) So my question is, What is it that you can do when you're in the fast mode? So in other words, could you have black coffee? Could you have tea? Could you have water? Could you have seltzer? What's the answer, Doc? Yeah, so fasting is really, the classic definition of fasting is really water only. So water, whether it's still water or sparkling water or seltzer water, those are all okay. And usually no sweeteners, so nothing like, you know, those diet drinks. Yeah, no aspartame, no artificial sweeteners, no artificial flavors, so no diet Coke or whatever it is. And then you start to get into the variations of fasting. And most people feel that something like green tea and herbal teas are perfectly acceptable. Uh, And then you get into black coffee and maybe coffee with a bit of cream. Now you're definitely not fasting because now you've got some calories. But the thing is that you can still do very well in terms of weight loss, for example, having black coffee with a bit of cream or just black coffee. So I do that myself. So I will usually have coffee with a little bit of cream. And so that's not a true fast. But the thing is that if that allows you to do the fasting, then, hey, you're overall better doing that and getting through it because the whole point is not necessarily to semantically, technically pure fast. The point is to lose weight or maintain your weight or get healthy. And you can still do that even with these little things. So something like coffee is usually acceptable. When you go into longer fasts, some people will use things like bone broth, which again is technically not a fast. They're variations of fasting, but you can do very well. Bulletproof coffee in California is very popular, and some people do very well with that. What's bulletproof coffee? Bulletproof coffee is coffee with either butter or something called medium-chain triglyceride oil mixed in. So there's a lot of calories in that because of all the fat in it. But the fat doesn't have a lot of insulin effect, so it keeps your body sort of in the fat-burning mode. And the butter or whatever that's in the coffee, some people feel really suppresses their appetite. And that's one thing that, you know, allows them to fast. And some people do very well on it. Others don't. So you have to sort of see for yourself. But these are all variations of fasting. Well, you know, my problem, doctor, is that I've been on this for quite a while. I think it's going extremely well. I don't think I'm there yet by any means. The official number for diabetes is, what, 100 in the morning? It's usually defined by the hemoglobin A1C. Right, okay. So your lab will have a pre-diabetes and a diabetes. So the lab I use, for example, yes. 6% is normal, 6 to 6.4% is pre-diabetes, and above 6.5% is diabetes. 
the American Diabetes Association, I think, has slightly stricter rules. So up to, I think, 5.7 is considered normal as opposed to 6. So it, it, it varies a little bit. But the fasting blood glucose actually varies quite a bit. And that's one of the reasons that everybody sort of switched over to using this three-month average yeah. called the A1C. Yeah. So I guess the question is, how non-Aristotelian are you? My wife is an Aristotelian. She does not believe in all or nothing. I'm an all or nothing guy. So the other day, there we were, and without thinking, during my fasting period, I had a little piece of banana. I was extremely guilty to myself. But you, you are saying it's possible to get through that, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, for example, the point of fasting is to allow your insulin levels to fall. As your insulin levels fall, your body is going to switch over from using food to using body fat or stored food. Sure. Okay, so that's the process of switching over. So you're, as your insulin levels fall, you make a mistake and you eat the banana. Well, your insulin levels go up, but it's a small piece of banana, so it just then it goes up, but only a little bit. Then it starts going back down again, sort of like 10 minutes later. So you really haven't done a lot. It's not like everything just stops and you have to restart it all over again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because uh, your insulin levels are continued to fall other than that small little blip that you went up. So, yeah, I tell people don't worry about it. I mean, it's really not that big a deal. In fact, uh, some diets like Dr. Michael Mosley's 5 to 2 diet allow 500 calories during that fasting period. So that's another uh, variation of fasting, and some people do very well on that. But, yeah, absolutely, I wouldn't worry at all about a little bit here because it's not going to impede your benefits that you derive from the fasting. So 16 hours, in my case, water, seltzer, and, you know, there are those people who worry. I mean, we had a guy who worked here at Public Radio a while back who was a type 1 diabetic, I think, and his insulin would go way too low, and we'd have to grab him and bring him to the hospital. So there are some danger signals with people who fast who shouldn't be, right? Yeah, so if you are taking any kind of medication, so I'm assuming that he was on insulin, that's prescribed mm -hmm. based on their normal diet. So anytime you change the diet, you have to reevaluate with your doctor about what your insulin intake should be. So the thing is that in a normal body, so if you're not type 1 diabetic, if you're not on medications, then your blood sugars should never go low. And that's the secret. Like, for example, if you're a caveman and you haven't eaten for three or four days, well, it'd be tough if you started going into seizures, for example. So your body really doesn't do that. Your blood sugar is maintained in a normal level forever, basically, unless your body, unless you basically go very, very low in your body fat. So if you're on medications, you absolutely have to talk to your doctor first just to make sure that, uh, you know, some medications are taken with food, for example. So you have to be aware of that. You know, if you have a medical condition, then you have to make sure that you're doing it safely. That's the most important thing. Now, I have an identical twin brother. I'm a moderate diabetic in terms of, you know, just being slightly over the line, being treated with metformin and like that. Whereas my brother is a severe diabetic, identical twin. How do you explain that? Well, it all comes down to the environment and the diet. So if you look at the genetics, so there's clearly a genetic effect. But that explains differences within people, so one person to the next. But it doesn't explain population differences. So if you look at the United States, for example, the prevalence of type 2 diabetes has gone 
way, way up since about 1990 or so. Because we're eating uh, too much junk food? Is that the... Uh, yeah, too much processed foods, too much sugar, and a lot too much sort of refined carbohydrates, and really eating too frequently, too. So eating sort of constantly throughout the day. One of the last studies I had seen showed that the average person ate 14 hours and 45 minutes every day. So if you started eating at 8 a.m., you didn't stop eating until 10.45 p.m., right? That's a long time to be... Sort of like a cow out in the field. Yeah. <laughs> the difference, though, is that a cow is eating grass because the nutritional value of grass is so low. They actually have to do that. Yeah. Us as omnivores, we're more like rats, for example. Are yeah, sure we are. eat them all the time. They, they actually also do very poorly. But yeah, so the genetics of it is only one part. So because you have an identical twin, the genetics are identical, but the diet is not. So it's the same Absolutely. when you look at China, for example. In 1980, you had about 1% of Chinese people with type 2 diabetes. Now it's about 13%. So, you know, more than a tenfold increase within a single generation, the genetics of the population have not changed. What has changed is the diet and the way they eat and what they eat. So between you and your brother, you can't blame the genetics. You have to look at what is the diet and what can you do about it. Because remember, type 2 diabetes is a reversible condition. Prediabetes is a reversible condition. So the question is, what can he do to change himself, which is a very high-risk situation in terms of your health, in terms of heart disease, in terms of cancer, in terms of stroke? to change from a, non, or a severe diabetic to a mild diabetic because that is going to make more difference in his life than anything else. Yeah. Well, talk to me about fruit. When you're on the diet, what are the preferred things to eat? Now, I eat a fair amount of fruit. Is that a good idea or a bad idea? For type 2 diabetes, fruit is its not the worst thing in the world, but it's not the best either because there's sugar in it. And the, the other problem is fruit tends to be sweeter now than it used to be. So if you go back to the sort of 70s when I grew up, nobody ate fruit because it was sort of sour. You didn't have the super sweet varieties that you do now. So nobody ate pineapple. It was super tangy. Now mm -hmm. you have these golden pineapples, which are, whoa, they're so sweet. And the, now you have the white peaches, which are so sweet. And now they call them nature's candy. And you have the sort of rainier cherries, which are much sweeter than they used to be. And honey crisp apples, which are much sweeter than they used to be. So the varieties have been bred for sweetness because they taste good. So it's not the same. So back in, you know, when I was growing up, uh, you know, the parents would always have to force their kids to eat fruit. I don't force kids to eat fruit anymore because I don't have to. They actually taste so good that nobody has to be forced to eat them. So because they're sweet, you know that they're going to have a lot of sugar, and there's just no way around that. It's a natural sugar, sure, but it still is sugar. So if you're trying to lose weight or if you're trying to reverse your type 2 diabetes, when they're not the greatest of things. Now, there are other sort of redeeming qualities. They have a lot of fiber. They have a lot of nutrients and vitamins and so on. I'm not denying that. But if you're trying to do one of these things, then don't go overboard on fruit. You know, I'm not going to say never eat fruit because I don't think it's the worst thing in the world either. Cutting out the added sugars is probably much more important. Sure. But I wouldn't say eat fruit sort of three times a day either. Bread is a no-no because it's a carb. Potatoes are no-no because they're carbs. I've been staying away from them. But is that consistent with your thinking? Yeah. So again, if you want to lose weight, then you're trying to try and avoid those processed carbohydrates. So they tend to be these very concentrated sources of glucose, which is the sugar then in the blood. Something like beans, for example, are also carbohydrates, but a lot of it is not absorbed as well and they're unprocessed. 
and it's very hard to overeat these natural unprocessed carbohydrates. But bread is different. You know, you take the wheat and you process it by stripping out all the fat and taking out all the protein. Then you grind it into a very fine dust, which is what flour is, right? You throw it up in the air and it sort of stays there. So that processing makes it much more difficult for our bodies to handle. That is, when it's ground into such a fine dust, the absorption is very fast. So as soon as you eat stuff made out of flour, for example, blood sugar just spikes right up very quickly. And then it'll fall. And that's why if you just eat bread and jam in the morning, you get hungry again at like 1030. And what what happens is that you wind up bypassing a lot of the natural satiety signals. So if you eat something that, uh, yes, carbohydrates like beans, and you're eating a lot of carbohydrates, but they're bulky, they've got all this fiber in them. It's really hard to overeat it. If you eat, you know, getting back to your fruit question, say you eat apples, you eat a couple of apples. Well, you know, you can only eat so many, but if you drink apple juice, you could drink the juice from five or six apples very easily and then not feel full afterwards. So when you're eating processed carbohydrates in particular, you're bypassing these sort of natural satiety signals that tell us to stop eating, and that's one of the effects of processing on foods. So processed carbohydrates like bread, a lot of the white rice and potatoes are also very starchy, so probably not the best thing because they're they're just chains of glucose. What about strip steak and eating the fat at the end of the strip steak? Yeah, I always eat the fat. <laughs> Me too. But is it bad? No, and this is again one of the things that's in the process of being reevaluated. So, for years, everybody said, don't eat fat, don't eat fat, don't eat fat, because they thought that fat was going to cause heart disease. And this is a very interesting story, actually. So, the reason it came to that was that in the sort of 50s, there was this epidemic of heart disease. So, all these Americans were having heart disease for no reason that we could figure out. General Eisenhower. His physician, Dr. Paul Dudley White, used to say, walk every day. That's what he did. But he yeah, died. walking he, is great advice. He, but He died anyway. <laughs> so in the 50s, there was this epidemic of heart disease, and nobody knew why. Now we do. Now we know the reason why, because people were smoking. So at the time, oh, yeah. back when we, of course, said, no, 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 smoke doesn't cause anything. It's good for you. Look at all these doctors who are smoking. So there was a huge <laughs> cover-up, of course, with the tobacco companies. But what the scientists were left with was this unexplained huge rise in heart disease that they can't figure out. And so one of the sort of key people was Ansel Keys, who said that, well, it's dietary fat that's causing heart disease. And it's like, it didn't make sense because people have been eating fat for so many years, right? Mm -hmm. Thousands of years, they're eating fat. And it's like, what, since 1950, it causes heart disease, but it didn't ever before that? It didn't make sense. Like, why would butter cause heart disease now? And it didn't cause heart disease for the previous 2,000 years. But dietary fat got the rap for it because, you know, he is very influential. And so through the 80s and 90s, we were sort of in this real fat phobia where everything fat was bad. So you had all these fat-free candies and, you know, snack wells and all these sort of things until they re looked at the Mediterranean diet. And about 2000, the Mediterranean diet started getting recognized as actually pretty mm -hmm. healthy for you. And then they're like, hey, but they're eating nuts. And that was from the Adventist Health Study. They said people who eat nuts have a lot less heart disease. And nuts are full of fat. And avocados and olive oil and fatty fish like salmon. Like look at all these fatty foods that are actually really, really good for you. And there's sort of no getting around that. So then they coined the phrase sort of healthy fat. It's like 
there was also this whole thing called the French paradox, if you remember, because the Americans were eating low fat, the French were eating full cream, full fat, everything, and they had half the heart disease. So they said, what a paradox. How can the French eat so much fat and not get heart disease? And there was no paradox. Fat actually didn't cause the heart disease. It was all the smoking in the end, but it takes so many years for that sort well, of the thing. Well, the French certainly smoked a lot. They smoked a lot, for sure, and that was part of the paradox. How can they smoke and eat fat and not get heart disease? And, and like, the answer is? Well, the smoking is, is still bad for you, but it was the fat part that was really the French paradox part of it. The smoking, you know, I don't know that there's anybody who really advocates that no. smoking. But... This was the thing about the dietary fat is that it never was so bad for you. That's so so now, like a couple, about a year ago, Time magazine had a big cover story on butter is back. So even these saturated fats and the fats on your steak, for example, that everybody thought was really bad for you, probably are not. If you look back at the literature, it turns out that there was actually no evidence that eating dietary fat and natural fats were bad for you. What turned out to be really bad for you, and this is super ironic, is that the margarine in the 70s and yeah. 80s that was designed to replace all the saturated fat had trans fats. So they took these vegetable oils, then they uh, hydrogenated them, so they turned them into trans fats. And they'd say, oh, eat margarine, it's so much better for your heart. But they were actually chock full of trans fats. So the, we were avoiding the butter, which had natural fats, which weren't bad for us, and then eating trans fats were actually bad, bad, bad for us. And so we thought we were doing our heart, you know, heart-healthy margarine and all this sort of thing. And we are actually killing ourselves. So they estimated for a period of time, it was about 100,000 American deaths per year based, that were because of the trans fats. We actually gave ourselves more heart disease. Amazing. 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 And it, it's all this sort of misinformation, starting from the tobacco company to the trans fats, which, again, the food companies denied for years that there was a problem. And if you remember, we switched from popping popcorn and coconut oil, which is a natural fat, to, like, vegetable oils, which turned out to be full of trans fats. All those fast foods turned out to be full of trans fats. Amazing. Let me ask a question because we're running out of time seriously here. And this question has to do with those of us who take our bloods. You know, you do it and you're very happy with Dr. Fung and his diet and you're down to sometimes into the 80s and 90s as a result of what you've been doing. But then you eat something and it can spike, can go way up. You mentioned that earlier today. What's that all about? Well, the spike is not the important thing because if your sugar, blood sugar spikes up, it will go into your cells. Your body will use it. So if, say, you eat something, you have dessert or cake yeah. or whatever, and I you know, know that's going to spike your sugars. Well, what you do is you simply don't eat for a period after that. Your body will burn it off. You oh, put absolutely. in all that sugar into your system, let your body burn it off. So, doctor, is it how fast it comes down after it goes up? Yeah, what's dangerous, and this is the reason we use the A1C, which is a sure. average of sugar, is because that's a better marker. But the, the, your blood sugar goes up and down so fast. So minute to minute, it'll go up or down. So therefore, it's too volatile to be a great marker. Yeah. So that's why we do use this, which sort of smooths it out. So if on average, your sugar is like 6.5% versus 5.5%, it's a small difference in terms of the blood glucose, but... The percentage over time, when you multiply that higher sugar, maybe it's a little higher sugar, but multiplied over sort of 24 hours a day, over years, that's where you start to see some of the damage. 
So should you get a Nobel Prize for what you're doing? It's amazing. <laughs> it's amazing work you're doing. You know, all I really want to do, and this is the reason I do it, is, you know, once in a while I get these emails from people and they're like, oh, you know, thank you, I read your book, I, I, I listened to a YouTube lecture, and I got off all my insulin, I lost the weight, and it's like, I'm like, thank you. It's like, that is why I do what I do, because it's about giving people the information that they can use to make themselves healthy. Not everybody's going to do it. I know that. And I'm not. I'm guilty of it sometimes. I have cake sometimes. If I'm celebrating, I will have cake, right? But the point is to go back to that stage in the 1950s and 60s and 70s where you can enjoy your food because you're not eating all the time. You know, you're eating three meals a day, but you're still having that fasting period, 12 or 14 hours every day. And therefore, you're eating white bread and Oreo. And giving people the information that they need to get healthy is so rewarding to me because that means I've done something sort of good for people. Well, you know, hearing you speak about this is really interesting because I'm an orthodox fungist. I don't want to mess around with what you've taught me. You, on the other hand, are a great human being, and you say, okay, don't kill yourselves, everybody. But to me, the word is the word. (laughs) You know, I I just want to give people the right information, and, you know, I I believe in letting people do what they want to do. But there's also something to be said for, you know, the old school teaching. This is what you do, and this is how you do it, right? Right. Well, in any case, we've been talking to Dr. Jason Fung, a Canadian nephrologist, world-leading expert, and I mean leading expert on intermittent fasting and low-carb, especially for treating people with type 2 diabetes. He founded the Intensive Dietary Management Program, has written three best-selling health books. Dr. Fung's books include The Obesity Code, that's the one he says you should get started on, and also The Complete Guide to Fasting and The Diabetes Code, all available on Amazon.com. You can find out more at Dr. Fung's website at idmprogram.com or at dietdoctor.com. And so, Doctor, you have given us an immense amount of time. We're very grateful for it. And we hope your career continues to be as meteoric as it has been up to now. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. listening to Dr. Alan Chartok, President and CEO of WAMC Northeast Public Radio and Professor Emeritus at the University at Albany. For more information on WAMC's In Conversation with Alan series or to order a physical copy, call 1-800-323-9262 or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or on the Google Play Store. Music